uh, in a little more than a month from now, Judy Brown and I will celebrate wedding anniversary number 48. Yet, <laughs> yet, if you could watch a video of our life together, you'd soon realize that uh, we haven't really been all that good at marriage. But God did send me here today to talk to you about marriage. Now, when a guy gets up and says that his wife haven't been very good at something for 47.86, whatever that decimal point is right now, years uh, of marriage, you might also conclude that God sent you the wrong guy to talk about marriage, too. But in this case, I'm pretty sure he didn't. And one more thing, Judy's a lot better at fasting than I am. <laughs> Let's pray first. Father God, you know that I'm a little out of my comfort zone up here. So first, I ask you to help me put all of that aside. But more importantly, you know what you've been putting on my heart for this morning, and I believe I do too. I ask with my brothers and sisters who are gathered here that your Holy Spirit will help me to coherently bring your word forward today with clarity and brevity as you direct. So, three things. The struggle for marriage, the power for marriage, and the secret of marriage. Okay, all right. So the alliteration isn't that great. But for those of you who like three points in your messages, those are them. First, I want to begin talking about why marriage is a struggle. Now, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Why is it that this person who once brought such pure joy to my heart, how is it that I'm now so easily irritated? How is it that she's able to hurt me very deeply? And why is it that we go through difficult and awkward moments together? Why does all this stuff happen? Well, the good news is that you don't have to wonder about that. Because the Bible is very clear about why marriage can be a struggle. And it's very clear about where help is to be found. Now, I don't, know to, I, I don't know that if you've noticed or not, but your Bible is not arranged by topic. Um, the Bible is essentially a grand redemptive story. And Paul Tripp says, it's a story with God's essential explanations and applications. So that means that if you want to understand marriage, you can't just go to the passages that mention marriage. Because that's not the way the Bible works. To the degree that every passage tells me things about God and things about myself and things about life in this fallen world, and things about the disaster of sin, and things about the operation of grace, to that degree, every passage tells me something about me and everything in my life, including my marriage. The struggle of marriage. I want to start by taking you to a passage this morning that's indispensable to help understand the struggle of marriage. This is a familiar passage to many of us. 
we've probably read it several times, but maybe we haven't been hit with the dramatic and relational impact that it has for marriage. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. I love the way this passage begins. For the love of Christ controls us. Don't I wish that I could sit up here and say, that's usually the case for me. But it's not. If I told you that the love of Christ usually controls me, I'd be fibbing. But Paul says, because the love of Christ does control him, he has reached a conclusion. Verse 15 says, Christ died for all. All right, now listen very carefully. Here's the conclusion. That those who live should no longer live for, what does he say? Themselves. In that phrase, should no longer live for themselves. Paul identifies something deep inside every heart that's in this room. Something deep in every couple who's ever been married. And something deep inside of every human being who's ever lived. Should no longer live for themselves. Is the reason for the chaos in every relationship that's ever existed. In just six brief words, should no longer live for themselves. It's dramatically profound. Jesus came so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Living for yourself in marriage is a marriage killer. This is sin. What does that do for us? It causes us to be way too self-absorbed, way too self-oriented, and way too self-possessed. The sin of living for myself keeps me stuck in the center of my universe and makes it all about me. It causes me to shrink the field of my concern. It brings me down to the claustrophobic confines of my wants, my needs, and my feelings. Tripp says the DNA of sin is selfishness. And I'm here to tell you this morning that it is the selfishness of sin that makes marriage a struggle for us. It takes the beauty and the brightness out of marriage and it makes it dark. Because when the core of what motivates me is what I want, what I say I need, and what I feel when I'm in the middle of my universe, my marriage is driven by law, not grace. It's my selfishness that causes my marriage to struggle. But I don't have to stay there. Jesus died so that I no longer have to live for myself. Next point. <laughs> the power of marriage. Uh, okay, now, hold up for a minute. Some of you are thinking, they're already on point two. We're going to be out early today. <laughs> Probably not. There's a lot more verses in this next passage. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. 
there's a lot more here than just the list of duties for wives and husbands that most of us are familiar with in Ephesians 5. And part of that's because we're going to go back a little further than where the traditional marriage passage starts in verse 22. So we're going to read. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. In the English Standard Version, which seems to be pretty well liked around Summit, uh, verse 21 is correctly translated as the last phrase of a long previous sentence that began back in verse 18. A lot of other translations render verse 21 as a separate sentence. But doing that, in my opinion, I, I think it hides an important point that Paul is trying to make. In this long single sentence that begins in verse 18 all the way through verse 21, Paul is telling the entire church not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. In verses 19 and 20, he goes on to give us a look at some of the behaviors that characterize what a Spirit-filled life looks like. Addressing one another in Psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is obviously not a full and definitive list of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, but Paul is reminding them that they need to be filled with the Spirit, and he's reminding them of some of what accompanies that in verses 19 and 20. In the final clause of that long sentence that started back in verse 18, the phrase, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He tells them that submitting to one another is possible through the Holy Spirit. Now stop and think about that for a minute, because that's key. 
That's really hyper important in understanding Ephesians 5. We know that the Holy Spirit's ministry is to take truths about Jesus and make them clear to our minds and real to our hearts. So real that they console and empower us and change us at our very center, our selfish and sinful center, which stands in direct opposition to what Jesus' death and resurrection did for us. What he accomplished on the cross so that we should no longer live for ourselves. Finally, there's one crucial phase, phrase uh, left in verse 21 that ends this long sentence. That phrase is, out of reverence for Christ. And this is another conclusion by Paul. But we got to dig a little deeper to get this. The English word for reverence is actually a bit weak to fully convey what Paul is talking about here. More literally, Paul is saying that we should submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. But the word fear is a little misleading too, because in English it conveys an idea of fright or dread. For some clarity, let's take a quick trip back to the Old Testament, where the term fear of the Lord is more commonly found. Proverbs 28.14 tells us that happy is the one who feareth always. Psalm 130.4 says, forgiveness comes from you, therefore you are feared. The use of the phrase fear of the Lord in these verses implies relationship. A relationship between God and us. Fearing him means bowing before him in awe of his holiness, his glory, and his beauty. Back to Ephesians 5.21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In a very real sense, out of reverence for Christ speaks to being in awe of those same divine attributes of holiness, glory, and beauty. Because Jesus, just as his Father, is also full deity. But Christ was also known to them, Paul and the Ephesians, as an historical figure. Out of reverence for Christ is Paul's, again, his own conclusion in this sentence because of his conversion experience on the road to, Dam on the road to Damascus with Christ. Paul, formerly the great persecutor and public enemy number one of the church, was completely flipped over at his dramatic conversion. Paul was overwhelmed with the wonder of Christ's love and the sacrifice, not only for himself, but as for the Ephesians as well, specifically what Christ accomplished on the cross. So after telling the Ephesians that they need to be filled with the Spirit and reminding them about what the Spirit-filled life looks like and giving them the indicative to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. After all of that, now Paul turns his attention to the subject of marriage, showing them and us that there's a very tight connection between marriage and life in the Spirit and having reverence for Christ. Paul is declaring that everything he's about to tell them 
about marriage requires that the spouses are being filled with God's spirit and reverencing Christ because only the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us, made real to us by the Holy Spirit, this alone is what enables and empowers us. In other words, if you have learned to serve others by the power of the Holy Spirit, only then will you have the power to successfully face the challenges that biblical marriage presents. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In verse 22, Paul begins with the controversial issue of gender roles. He tells wives to submit to their husbands. As members of modern Western culture, we immediately focus on the use of that word submit, especially as it relates to women. But if we only look at Paul's admonition to wives using this word submit, we can get stuck here. And if we're not careful, careful, we can easily miss Paul's introductory point. Oh, and Paul's introductory point doesn't need any elbows. <clears throat> now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word. In verse 25, he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And this is, if anything, an even stronger appeal to abandon self-interest than the one that was given to the wife. We are all immediately reminded of something that is fundamental. That whether we are husband or wife, we are not to live for ourselves, but for Christ, and in turn, for our spouse. Paul directs husbands to look at Christ's sacrificial love towards us, the church, his bride. He tells us to give ourselves up for our wives and to love them with a sacrificial love that emulates Christ's love. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to speak about the goal of Christ's sacrificial love. And in verse 26, it's there. It's to sanctify her, to present her in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish in verse 27. Now, we know that all Christians are told to confess their sins to one another and to hold each other accountable for growth and are to serve and encourage each other. But Paul only tells husbands to sacrificially commit to the spiritual growth of their wives here. He doesn't give this specific duty to the wives. Why is that? Well, I don't know for sure, but I kind of tend to agree with Tim Keller that perhaps husbands are singled out for a couple of different reasons. 
maybe Paul singles out the husbands because he recognizes that we husbands may actually be less likely to comply with this duty than our wives might be. Or possibly it's because of the mantle of spiritual leadership he has just described and he deems us husbands needing to be more responsible, especially when the marriage fails to embrace the spiritual growth of both partners. We can't know for sure why husbands are singled out, but we do know this for sure. In the light of Christ's complete giving of himself to make the church holy and to cleanse her, husbands are called to utterly commit to the total well-being of the marriage and especially to the spiritual welfare of their wives, also known as servant leadership. In verse 31, Paul quotes the final verse of the Genesis account of the first marriage. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul is saying that each marriage is a new family, and we must not impose the patents of our family of origin upon our own marriage. We need to understand how those previous family patents influence us and not unconsciously assume that when we marry, our marriage needs to necessarily operate on the same basis as what we grew up with. It's the responsibility of both husbands and wives on the same uh, basis to come together to be deliberate and prayerful and make decisions together on how they are going to live their lives in their marriage that's going to honor God. In verse 32, Paul goes on to say that the mystery is profound. The mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The Greek word that Paul uses here is mysterion. And this word has a lexical range that includes the idea of a secret. According to Tim Keller, this word is used in the Bible to mean a wondrous, unlooked-for truth that God is revealing through the Spirit. So after telling us that a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, he tells us that there is an extraordinarily great, wonderful, and profound truth that can only be understood with the help of God's Spirit. And this brings us to the secret of marriage. To understand the secret of marriage, we can't just stay in the passages that talk about marriage. Just as husbands and wives are told to give themselves up in Ephesians 5, Jesus gave himself up for us. Although equal with the Father, he gave up his glory and took on our human nature. Philippians 2.5 But further, he willingly went to the cross and paid for the penalty for our sins, removing our guilt and our condemnation so that we could be united with him. Romans 6.5 and take on his nature, 2 Peter 1.4. He gave up his power and glory and became a servant. He died to his own interest and looked to our needs and interests instead. Romans 15.1-3. So the secret of marriage is this. We must not only recognize Jesus' sacrificial service to us and the deep union that he made possible for us to have with him, but we must see that picture, that example of self-sacrifice, is what he is calling us, husbands and wives, to pursue. 
And he has already laid the foundation for them to understand that they can only accomplish this by being filled with the Spirit and with reverence for Christ. And that picture, that example, Paul says, is not only the key to understanding the mystery of marriage, but it's the secret to living it. The Ephesians marriage passage ends with a very simple and practical piece of advice on how to begin. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The power of the gospel made real to us by the Holy Spirit is what fills your heart with God's love so that you can handle it when your spouse fails to love you like they should. And when your spouse hurts you very deeply and you need to learn how to forgive. And when your spouse experiences the gospel, it enables them to show you the same kind of love, grace and forgiveness when the time comes for it. One of God's greatest purposes in marriage is for us to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. It's the only way through the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we can do marriage his way, the way that he created it to be. If God had the gospel in mind when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that we approximate the pattern of God's self-giving love through Christ. And that is the secret of marriage. But this isn't just some theological, philosophical point that I can sit up here and tell you. Um, we have to take this from the philosophical and make it street-level theology. Because if it's not practical, it's not spiritual. None of us live out our theology in some big ivory tower world of peaceful libraries and deep thoughts. No, we're street theologians who live in the real world of slamming doors, raised voices, and angry couples. The world we are where we are all still sinners. But Paul says, do for your spouse what God did for you and Jesus, and the rest will follow. But how hard that is. I'm a sinner. So is Judy Brown. Husbands, that radiant woman on whose finger you slipped that wedding ring, she's a sinner. Wives, the man who offered you a vow of perfect faithfulness and lifelong commitment, He's a sinner. Fiancés, your better half is a sinner. Some of you don't believe that. Spirit created unselfishness through recognizing Christ's example is crucial if we're going to have the marriages that God has ordained for us. This means not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. 
I told you guys up front that Judy and I are not a great story of marital success. Love of self has gotten in the way of love for God, and love of self has gotten in the way of loving one another. And when this has happened, our marriage has suffered greatly. And today, June 26, we're still two fallen sinners living in a broken world. And here's the evidence. Sometimes we argue when we need to listen. Sometimes we're not willing to look, overlook an offense. Sometimes we don't want to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. And sometimes we're not willing to go through even a moment of tension so we can get the truth out on the table. Husbands, can you relate to this example that I'm about to give you that illustrates how the presence of sin in our marriages can sometimes play it out, play itself out. Here I am, just here, just a lovable bundle of neutrality and noble-heartedness, minding my own business when she says or does something. I quickly analyze the content and determine from my own unassailable vantage point that, well, she has clearly crossed a line. So acting swiftly and efficiently as a judge and jury of one, I objectively evaluate her behavior as obviously sinful. Her transgression demands a just but resolute response from me. In order to deal swiftly with any violation of my emotional airspace or risk a breach of my own personal security, I must expose her sin plainly and, of course, condemn it openly. Now, if this creates a negative impact on her, my wife, who, in my mind, is the clear aggressor here, well, a stern response from me is unfortunate, but necessary to maintain the peace. In fact, I'm simply engaged in a tough act of spiritual leadership here. Perhaps she will learn a lesson for the future. Yes, it just feels right, doesn't it? It's a great example of sinful, selfish nature doing what it does best making war against the spirit, and in this case, against my own wife as well. She didn't want her own spirit versus flesh battle at that moment, but for me, she got one anyway. Judy and I had a long history of messing it up. We hurt each other a lot. We spent the better part of five years separated. We were broken. And we were eventually humbled. To a point when in God's timing, in 2014, he brought both of us to kneel at the foot of the cross together at the same time. And it didn't happen overnight. But when we both allowed God to humble us, he began to use the trials of our marriage to help unveil 
the secret of marriage for us, the beauty and the depth of the gospel. Learning that grace and forgiveness aren't just gifts from him to each of us, but we are also called to be conduits of those gifts to each other. The need to be filled and led by the Spirit instead of each of us answering to the demands of our own two selfish kingdoms of one. Those trials drove us into further reliance on the gospel and it saved our marriage. And now, the gospel is still teaching us how to have a deeper union with each other. As we remember the example of Christ's selfish sacrifice, selfless sacrifice is the only roadmap to build our marriages powered by the reliability, and that's not the wrong word to use there, powered by the reliability of the Holy Spirit. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we're more loved and more accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the gospel that saved our marriage. Man, it's hard to fix something that you don't understand. But it's even harder to fix it when you think the problem is the other person, like I did. Someone said, a fundamental truth in life is that accurate diagnosis always precedes an effective cure. Here's the diagnosis. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Until we understand the problem, we're unable to delight in the solution that comes in the next verse. We are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When Judy and I look back, we are amazed by all that God has done. We love each other dearly, and we're grateful for all the years that we've had together. Our days have been full and exciting. We really haven't had too many boring days. But our story is not a grand story of marital success. Our story could be more accurately described as the story of two people who have been rescued by God's grace and wisdom again and again. Over and over, we've been forgiven and empowered by that grace. Over and over, we've been convicted and convinced and transformed and directed by the Holy Spirit. We've learned the truth of Ephesians 5 the hard way, that it is only the ministry of the Holy Spirit showing you the power of the gospel that furnishes you to face the challenges of marriage. And only by that power will you have all that you need to be able to forgive as God forgives and to be a conduit of God's grace towards your spouse so that the two of you can build your house together his way. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it will labor in vain. Judy and Brian 1.0 labored in vain for a long time. But God is still at work, refining us to reflect his image. He created us in his image, but because we're sinners, and because the DNA of sin is selfishness, we became broken, and we got tarnished living in this broken world. But through the gospel, he gave us another chance to learn from his example. 
In Romans 15, Paul says that we should not please ourselves because on the cross, Christ did not please himself. Christ did not please himself. In Ephesians 2, Paul wrote that we should count others better than ourselves. Because when Christ humbled himself and came into the world, he didn't hang on to his superiority. He came down and emptied himself by his glory and served us, even to the point of dying for us. God wants our marriage and your marriage to be a picture of that. There's still times when we both put trust, more trust in our own instincts than we do in God's wisdom. Yet, we love his word and the stunning wisdom that it contains. And we're still learning to rest in his spirit and to learn that wisdom and grace and allow that wisdom from above that James speaks of to be our moment-by-moment -moment guide as we relate to each other, extending that grace to each other. Let the Holy Spirit bring that home to your heart. And then, out of reverence for Christ and in the fullness of the Spirit, we can turn to our spouses and live with them in the manner that he's called us to do. Andy, could you get ready to come? You know, one of the fundamentals of life and also of marriage is that time marches on. When I think back to that very warm August afternoon in 1974, we got married the day after Richard Nixon resigned the presidency. That's how long ago that was. <laughs> when I think back to that day, I remember that Judy and I were dressed in all of the wedding finery. She had a beautiful white gown, and I wore a white tux. had this black edging around it. She was 18, and I was 20. We had a maid of honor. We had a maid of honor and a matron of honor. Three bridesmaids, a best man, four groomsmen. And all four of our parents were alive and present. Aunts, uncles, some grandparents, other family members, and lots of friends were there too. Those of you that are married can think back to your own special day. And you have your own special memories as well. We were excited as we stood before our pastor and spoke the vows that we had each written for the other on that special day. We weren't just playing dress up that day. But now we know how much we didn't understand back then. And maybe some of you identify that in memories of your wedding day, too. Perhaps, like us, you realize so much more than what you knew back on that day when you began life together. Judy and I are probably further chronologically removed from our wedding day than most of you. But maybe, like us, you know that someday, instead of standing before a minister and repeating your vows, someday, like us, 
you will be standing before God himself. And you will hope to hear some acknowledgement or some affirmation about how together, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you built a legacy from the marriage union and partner that he entrusted to you. And some of you have completed building your marriage legacy because your spouse is already with Jesus. Someday, we hope to hear him say something like this to us. You guys got off to a rough start, and you both sure tried to do this your own way for a long time. But over the years, you made progress in learning how to lift each other up to me. You finally figured out that to honor me was the reason that I gave each of you to the other. And that was only possible by following the example of my son and by letting my spirit empower you. You learn something about how to sacrifice for one another. And in that, you held one another up in prayer and thanksgiving. You confronted each other. You forgave each other. You hugged and you loved each other. And finally, finally, you learned how to push one another towards me. And look at you now. You are radiant, spotless, holy, and without blemish. Well done, good and faithful servants.